Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. Now, today is June 28th. We're in Acts 28. And we're 28 days away from our last Sunday in this building. Today is the last Sunday of our five-year contract for this facility. uh, The one that we had planned and hoped to purchase. And we come to the last of the record of Paul's ministry on earth, though his life would continue for another five or six years. And we also have come to the last leg of Paul's journey to Rome, which the Lord had promised that he would successfully make. So we've got three 28s and three lasts this morning. And you know what that means? Nothing. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I thought it was kind of funny. Well, this morning we're reminded that this whole journey began with a promise. Acts 23, 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness where? At Rome. Now, immediately after this promise was made, there was an effort to assassinate Paul. Another effort would be made of the same nature later. He spent most of the next two years in the Caesarean Praetorium prison, followed by a series of inquiries by increasingly powerful men as to why he had been arrested. This was followed by a perilous sea journey that ended in a shipwreck on the Isle of Malta, where he was bitten by a deadly snake, as we will see this morning. Now, this is a very timely reminder for us as a church family that being in God's will is not without difficulty, nor is it without storm. And that the way to get where God has promised is not always or maybe even ever the direct route. Now, we know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And Paul took anything but the direct route to Rome, yet he will arrive as we'll see in our text this morning. Now, a reminder from a very special book in the history of this church, the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 6, 1 through 9, we're told with Nehemiah and his efforts to rebuild the destroyed walls around Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity had ended. It happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me what? Harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them, Have you ever noticed the devil never gives up? He just keeps coming. They sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, 
no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart, for they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah was pursuing the will and the call of God on his own life based on the burden that he had for his great city, the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. And he was doing a great work and the enemy sought to both distract him and discourage him. His answer to the invitation to Ono was, Oh no, I will not go down to you. I'm not going to stop the work. And we might think of this as him saying, I'm not going to stoop to the level of the enemy's efforts to distract and discourage when doing a work for the Lord. Now, Paul didn't let storms deter him either, even though, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he, <coughs> excuse me, momentarily let his emotions get the best of him when he said to the captain and crew before this journey began, this is a bad idea, we're going to lose everything, and we're all going to die. But we know Paul wasn't going to die. Jesus said he was going to Rome, and nothing that happened between Caesarea and Rome was going to stop it. There, okay. I'm just waiting for you to catch up there for a moment. Now, nothing, listen this morning, nothing, say nothing, nothing can stop God's plan for CTT. Amen? Nothing. No matter how circuitous the route we may take to get to the place that God has called us to have as a church home. So, as we come to the last chapter of Acts, the last record of Paul's ministry on this last Sunday, at least of the contract we had with the Nazarene church. And though we don't know what the Lord has for us next, what we need to both do and remember is our title this morning, and our title is simply Faithful and True. Faithful and True. The Lord is faithful and true. We are to be faithful and true to the Lord even as he is faithful and true to us. And Hebrews would say in 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Is faithful. Now, Paul may have wobbled emotionally for the moment, but he never wavered from what God called him to do. Jesus told him he was going to Rome, and he did. Because if God said it, that settles it. And Jesus said he will never leave nor forsake us, and he won't. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and they can't. And while we don't know where Paul went after his two years in Rome, we do know that based on his past, he was faithful to the one who was faithful to him. And we can be too, even though we don't know what's next. Even when the future is unknown and the next step or season is yet to be revealed. God is faithful. His word is true. And we, like Paul and a host of others in Scripture, are, to, are free to live with the full assurance of hope until the Lord either calls us home or comes to get us as a group. I vote for the second one. So let's see what that means as we wind up our journey through Acts that has actually taken longer than it did for Paul to get to Rome. So would you stand and read with me, please, from Acts 28. We'll start with verses 1 through 10 and complete uh, the balance of the chapter as we go this morning. 
Acts chapter 28, 1 through 10. Now, when they had escaped, then they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw that the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And Lord, we are thankful for our journey through this incredible record of the Acts of the Apostles, Lord, which is more appropriately the Acts of the Holy Spirit through them. And we pray that your spirit would move in this place this morning, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, and confidence, Lord, in the fact that you never leave us nor forsake us. You have a plan for us and a place for us. And Lord, as you who are faithful and true remain that way to us, may we learn more about the importance of remaining that way to you. In our time at text this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, chapter 27 ended with all 276 passengers either swimming or floating on a portion or part of the ship safely to the shore after the ship was battered by the waves, having run aground off the Isle of Malta. Now, we were told that they didn't know where they were, and Malta was not an unfamiliar island, but the ship actually ran aground in what is now called St. Paul's Bay, on the opposite side of the island from where the main port was. Now, some commentators have estimated that they actually were blown off course and traveled some 600 miles during the storm. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, they ran aground, uh, kind of interestingly, on the place that put them in perfect position to make the northward journey past Syracuse, Sicily, and then pass through the Straits of Messina, and wind up on the proper side of Italy where they would then make their way to Rome. We're also told that the natives were unusually kind to them and even built a fire to warm the wet and cold survivors of the shipwreck. Now the word natives isn't what we would think of when we think of a shipwreck scene or a castaway type scene. The word actually means non-Greek speaking foreigners. Now, Paul, showing he had a servant's heart and a servant's attitude, joins the efforts to stoke the fire and gathers a bundle of sticks himself, and out from it comes a poisonous snake that attaches itself to his hand. Now, oddly, some of the commentators said 
It doesn't mean that he was bitten by the snake. He may actually not have been bitten, and that's why he didn't die. I don't know why some people try and diminish the majesty and power of God. How else is a snake going to attach itself to your hand? It's going to bite you, right? So Paul got bit by, actually it was an adder, a poisonous snake that was deadly to all. And the superstitious locals then assumed that justice was being served because they believed in a Greek goddess called Dike, who was a goddess of justice and revenge. And they believed she was at work because Paul was actually likely a murderer and having survived the sea, that would have been uh, the shipwreck, that would have been an injustice. So she made sure that he was going to experience what he deserved and die from the snake bite. They watched, they waited for either Paul to swell up or to simply fall over dead. And then when nothing happened, they switched gears and said, no, he's not a murderer, this guy's a god. And this wasn't Paul's first experience with such a thing. And remember when Paul had healed a lame man in Lystra and uh, the Lord had healed him through Paul, I should say. And the crowd's reaction there in Acts 14, 11 to 15 was when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature of you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Now, here on Malta, whether Luke actually overheard the Maltese natives talking or something was actually said to Paul about him being a god, we don't know. But we do know that he would have remained faithful and true to the faithful and true one and would have rejected such a notion that he was someone special, even as he did back in Lystra. Now, it also reminds us, though in reverse order, how quickly the thinking of the masses can change, even as we have seen it happen in our world. The church in our country was once viewed as the moral people of God. And yet today the church is viewed as the enemy of love, tolerance, and all things that are good. Now in verse 7, we find further evidence that natives doesn't mean the classic shipwrecked sense living in a grass hut type of native, as this man named Publius, which is the Latin word for popular, is introduced as a leading citizen who lived not in a grass hut, but rather he lived on an estate. His father was sick with Malta fever, which came from a bacteria contained from drinking or contained in Maltese goat's milk. And this sickness would last anywhere from four months to two years. Can you imagine having a fever for two years? And actually, uh, this was finally discovered uh, I think the cure was actually somewhere in the late 1800s where they finally figured out what this was that was happening on the Isle of Malta and found the cure and solved the issue. Now this man who had been sick and had a fever, Paul prayed for him. The Lord healed him as he did the rest of the people on the island who came to Paul for that purpose, for their maladies uh, to be healed. 
Then the locals honored Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus in many ways, we're told, and gave the group what they needed to make the journey the rest of the way to Rome. So in summary, consider this. Paul gets bit by a poisonous snake and is unharmed. Then God heals multitudes on an island they never planned to go to. And that's all after having miraculously delivered 276 people from a raging storm and a destroyed ship. Now, here's what we need to remember about the faithful and true one when it feels like we have been blown off course. Are you ready this morning? Listen, the unplanned and unexpected are prime opportunities for something miraculous. The unplanned and unexpected are prime opportunities for something miraculous. Looking back on the history of Scripture, remember the Israelites had fled from the Egyptians and the Lord told Moses where they needed to camp. He said, tell them to camp between the mouth of gorges, the well of bitterness, the master of storms, and the Red Sea, while Pharaoh's army is going to be in pursuit of them. What happened when they were boxed in like this? Well, Exodus 14 says, the Red Sea parted, and they walked over to the other side. Remember when Joshua and Israel were coming into the promised land, and the Jordan River was overflowing its banks because God sent them into the land during flood season, and they needed to cross over to get to the land that God had given them. And when the priest who carried the ark got into the waters of the Jordan River, the waters stood up in a heap, and the people crossed over on dry ground, according to Joshua 3. Remember when Jesus told the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side, a storm came up. They thought they were going to die. Jesus calmed the storm, and immediately they were at the other side where they were going in John 6, 21. Remember when Paul and Silas were put in prison in Philippi for casting the demon out of a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and her loss of that a demonic gift cost her owners a great sum of money. What happened when they had been beaten and their feet were in stocks and they were singing hymns at midnight? An earthquake hit, all the chains fell off, and the Philippian jailer and his whole family got saved, according to Acts 16. Listen, we could go on and on and on throughout the biblical record, but we as a church family need to remember that we are in a place right now that is going to require a miracle and God has an established pattern of doing them. And when things are unexpected and even unwanted, God has the power to do things that are beyond our understanding and belief. And what we need to remember that because we need a miracle, God is going to do one. He is faithful and he is true and he will not fail us because we are his people. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, let's look at 11 through 22. Now, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as the Appii Forum and three inns. 
And Paul saw, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass, after three days, that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Then they said to them, him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Now we know from Acts 27, 9, that the group left Crete in late October or early November, and now having been in the storm for two weeks, having weathered the winter on Malta for three months, it is somewhere around late February or early March. Now the common practice of wintering ships in uh, large and safe harbors means they probably found another Alexandrian grain ship from Egypt at the Boletta Harbor on the other side of the island across from St. Paul's Bay where his ship ran aground and was destroyed. Now the figurehead of this ship was the twin brothers, Castor and Pollux, and they were the twin sons of the Greek gods Zeus and his wife Leda, according to Greek mythology. And supposedly these twin brothers were the gods of the mariners. And if their constellation Gemini was seen during a storm, it was an omen of good luck. And Luke recorded this most likely to contrast the superstitions of the people of the Greco-Roman world with that of the fact-based beliefs of Christianity. Now, Luke records more specifics about the village, uh, voyage rather, from Syracuse, Sicily, to the toe of Italy at Regium, and then on to Puteoli, 152 miles south of Rome. And then verse 15 says, while traveling on the Appian Way, they were met by brethren from Rome whom they encountered at the Forum of Appius and the three taverns, which were 43 and 33 miles respectively from Rome. Now, on their arrival finally in Rome, the prisoners were delivered to the captain of the guard. Paul was allowed to rent a home while chained to the guard who was assigned to him while he awaited his turn to have his voice heard before Caesar himself. Now, as was Paul's custom in every city, he sought out the Jews first. But this time, he didn't go to meet them in the synagogue. He sent for them to come to his rented house. He recounts for them the series of events in Caesarea and how it came to be that he was in Rome. And they replied by saying, we haven't heard anything about any of this. Now in Acts 25, we need to remember the Jews from Jerusalem were trying to convince Festus to send Paul to Jerusalem for trial. And their plan was to lie in ambush along the road and kill Paul. Festus refused and said, I'll hear his case here in Caesarea. Now in Acts 25, 
7 to 12, we're told when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, taking advantage of his Roman citizenship, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, it's likely partially true what the Jews in Rome said. They had not received a letter of complaint from the Jews we just read about in Acts 25 from Jerusalem, who twice plotted to assassinate Paul. And the reason being, they knew that their case didn't hold any water in the court of Roman law. It was, however, likely untrue that they had never heard anything evil about Paul. Otherwise, why would they have come to see him in the first place with some insignificant man sends for them, a prisoner of Rome at that, and asks them to come and have an audience with him? Now, the interesting thing about this conversation is that they didn't want to discuss Paul's case, but they wanted to hear more about the sect that Paul belongs to. Uh, now, it's interesting because this conversation seems pretty benign at first, but we need to recognize that the word sect is actually the Greek word for heresy. They didn't want to talk to Paul about Judaism. They wanted to talk to Paul about his heresy. They said, we want to hear what you think about this heresy that everybody is speaking against. And in our next verses, we'll see they set up a time to meet later. Now, the reason I wanted to include what Paul or what happened with Paul when he stood before Festus is to draw a comparison between the Jews in Rome and the Jews, the very orthodox Jews, the very zealous Jews from Jerusalem. And Romans 1 gives us an insight as to the climate uh, morally of Rome while Paul was there. The city was notorious for its laxual, or lax rather, laxual, that's a, a compound word of lax and sexual. Their lax sexual morality, their brutal sports activities, and obviously, as we noted a moment ago, their polytheism that just barely tolerated the Jews themselves, though there were, there were, there were some 12 synagogues within the city of Rome with a population of some 800,000 to 1 million people at the time. Remember in Acts 17, 19 to 21, we were told about when they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of, what you, of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. They too wanted to hear about what it was that Paul believed. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Now, while the Roman Empire was at its zenith, it was still heavily influenced by 
Greek culture and implemented much of its governmental practices, as well as uh, including a senate and a judicial system that the Greeks had implemented. And even their worship was influenced by the Jews. They simply migrated many of the uh, Greek deities into their culture. Jupiter was the Roman equivalent to Zeus. The Greek god Hermes was renamed by the Romans. Mercury, Venus became Aphrodite. Artemis was to the Greeks Diana. So the Jews in Rome say to Paul, we don't want to discuss Judaism. We want to talk about this new heresy. Now, our second point is going to be learned from the Roman attitude of the day and that of the Jews who sent for Paul, and that is this. It's rather lengthy, but I think you'll find that a worthy reminder. Listen this morning. Being faithful and true to the word will never lead us to be aligned with the world. Being faithful and true to the word will never lead us to be aligned with the world. Now, this is the very reason that the church is largely divided today. Too many Christians are acting on their feelings, opinions, and what is being said and dictated by the culture of our day. Too many are acting like the Jews in Rome when they first talked to Paul. We don't want to talk to you about what it is we believe. We want to talk to you about what everybody else believes and what everybody else is talking about and all the evil that is being said of what is going on concerning this particular group. Now, Jesus reminds us in John 15, 18 to 21, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Listen close. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Are those who don't know the Lord driving the narrative today, driving the culture today, driving the moral uh, standard or lack of it in our world today? And I have to say, we hear a lot today about being woke. Anybody else hear that term? So-and-so is woke, or this group is woke. It's a slang term for either being aware or meaning being intensely aware. There are Christians today who are posting on social media, hashtag stay woke or stay aware of what's going on. And the fact is, these people aren't woke. They are sound asleep and they are being dictated to by the world because they have departed from the word of God. And this is why we're in the season we're in as the church today. Not this church. We stick to the book. Amen. Second Timothy 4, 2, Paul is told, preach the word. Be ready. Next two words. In season and when? Out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, which are attributes or results of having preached the word. Preaching the word is out of season right now. It's not popular right now. So that means the best thing for us to do is to change our message to accommodate the itching ears of society. Right? No. What do we do? We preach the word. Because when we preach the word, people will be convinced of the word. 
has the word ever rebuked you? Oh, apparently not. It rebukes us all, doesn't it? It changes our course and our direction. Has the word ever exhorted you or built you up? Listen, it needs to be done with all long-suffering, meaning patience and teaching. And listen, preaching the word may be unpopular right now, and to many it's even unacceptable, but we don't take our direction from the world, and we don't bow to the demands of the world, and we stay faithful and true to the word which tells us we are to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So let's see how Paul handled this group who wanted to hear what he thought about the heresy of Christianity that everyone was speaking evil against. Pick it up in 22. But we desire to hear, I'm sorry, 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. I don't ever want to hear about going along with a sermon. (laughs) And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some, what? Disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after and uh, Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father saying, Go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now, we're told when they had appointed a day, many came to Paul. Now that implies that more than just the Jewish leaders who met with him initially to set up the appointment now arrived back at Paul's lodging when the appointed day arrived. And on their arrival, Paul explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. Now this phrase, kingdom of God, indicates that he preached Christ two comings from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, The Lord said through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, prophesying of Jesus, and will put my words in in his mouth. Did not Jesus say the words I speak are those of the Father? And he shall speak to them all I command him. Then Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, meaning his responsibility, speaking of his reign during the millennium. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then in Zechariah 12.10, we're told that I will pour on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, Luke tells us that what happens now happened then when Paul preached all those things to the Jews. Some were persuaded and others disbelieved. Now, the word disbelieved is an interesting choice of the Holy Spirit as it means to disobey. It can also mean to, dis, uh, to betray a trust. Now, the word of God is trustworthy. Amen? Amen. And when we don't listen to it, we're betraying its trustworthiness. And the Jews had even had the oracles of God, the sayings of God, entrusted to them. And Paul even pointed out that this response was prophesied by Isaiah. And then he says in verse 28 that because of the rejection of the majority of the Jews who betrayed the fact that they were entrusted with the word of God, the salvation of God has now been sent to the Gentiles. Now this statement caused the departure of and a dispute within the Jews. And then Luke closes this incredible 28 chapter journey with a two verse nonchalant summary of the next two years where he simply says casually, Paul lived in a rented house and received everybody who came to him and he preached to them the kingdom of God, which was the same thing he preached to the Jews. And he did so with confidence in the word and no one sought to stop him. Now, here's our last consideration from our three year journey in the book of Acts. Listen this morning. There is no time or culture where being faithful and true to the word will not bear fruit. There is no time or culture where being faithful and true to the word will not bear fruit. Now, not every individual encounter will be fruitful, but there will be fruit within any culture or season of history through the faithfulness of those who do what Paul did, preach the kingdom of God with confidence. After all, 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture, say all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And again, here's the result of preaching the word, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now Hebrews 4.12 also tells us the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, listen close this morning as we wrap up our study in the book of Acts. When the word of God is watered down, when the word of God is compromised, when the word of God is adapted to accommodate culture, it loses the abilities we just read of. Many people, maybe even the majority of people today, don't like the Bible's message. And Isaiah said, some won't. And thus they can't be healed of the deadly malady of sin. But we don't need to pretend we're woke to reach the world. We need to do what Paul did. And when some don't or won't hear the truth, we go preach it somewhere else. Because there's going to be fruit in every season of history and every type of culture. After all, even at the height of the Roman Empire, 
and the rampant polytheism of the day when pleasure and sexual promiscuity and homosexuality were rampant and Christianity was viewed as heresy, God was still saving souls through the faithful and true preaching of his word. Now in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter told the listening crowd at Jerusalem, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off until 2020 as many as the Lord our God will call. Now listen, as I said on Wednesday night, we don't march with the world to show our solidarity. We march to the world and tell them they're perishing and need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Some will hate us, some will dispute with us, but some will repent and be saved even as we are. It's been that way since the day the church was born and it will be that way until the day the Lord comes to take us home. So let's finish well. Let's be watching for our miracle. We need one, so we're going to have one. Right? And maybe our next home is the Father's house. I'm good with that, right? Aren't you? And there are so many crazy things happening in our world today. There was an article uh, I was just telling Pastor Dave this past Friday. The Orange County Register said we are just two people away in Orange County from breaching the level the governor has deemed to be acceptable to continue to open up. Two more people on average start testing positive for COVID-19 and they're going to shut us down again and we're going to have to go back online again as is every other church in Orange County, Orange County unless they decide to act in civil disobedience and meet anyway and then who knows what will happen after that. They're tearing down statues all over our country. They're seeking to destroy our nation. So what do we do in such a time as this? Will we be more culturally sensitive? We march in agreement with them and we bow before other human beings. Is that what we do? No, we preach the word. Some will be angry about it. Some will reject it. Some will dispute it. But some will be saved because there is no time in human history. There is no culture where the word of God cannot and will not prevail to those who are desiring to be saved. Let's be faithful in these last days. And I think it's somewhat fitting and uh, I, again, the commentators were a bit baffled by Luke's conclusion, just these two verses where he just says, yeah, Paul rented a house and, you know, people came to him. He told them about Jesus. And, and that's the, the end of this incredible man of God's ministry, at least the written record. Now, we do know, as I said, that he likely... Uh, returned back to Ephesus or somewhere else. And he did live another five or six years before he was arrested again, taken back to Rome and killed by Caesar Nero sometime after 64 AD when Nero set the city on fire and blamed the Christians for it. But you know what? That's exactly the proper ending to this great book and these eight chapters that were dedicated largely to the Apostle Paul because it wasn't about Paul. 
It was about Jesus. And that's what we ought to be about in these last days. We need to be telling people about Jesus because only he can save them and he's still saving people today. We've been talking about how many people have been joining services online and the amazing amount of numbers of people. I know, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Greg out at Harvest Christian Fellowship, he has a call to be an evangelist and God has been using him for many, many years to lead people to Christ. And the fact is, the president said, hey, I'm going to be watching Greg Laurie online. So millions of people jumped online to see who the president was watching. And you know what happened? 11,000 people got saved on one Sunday morning. Or at least made professions of faith, I should say, as Pastor Greg would say. But listen, God is moving. And he is saving. And, and guess who he's still using? People like you and people like me. We don't have to be an Apostle Paul. We don't have to be like him. We can be like us. And like I want to encourage you as I have in time past, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I just don't know the Bible well enough. I don't feel confident in telling other people, well, you know what he did to you. You know what happened to you. And even if the whole of your testimony is simply, I once was lost, but now I found, was blind, but now I see, you're giving testimony of the name of Jesus Christ and the power of Almighty God. So let's be telling people about Jesus because he's the only one that can save them. And there is power in the name of Jesus. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. No other name among men under heaven by which one can be saved. It's only Jesus who saves. And whosoever will come to him, he will save them, and he will in no wise cast them out. Somebody say amen. amen. And Father, we are grateful for our time and journey through the book of Acts, and we thank you that uh, as you were not done with Paul, so too you are not done with us or CCT or us as individuals, and you have a work for us to do and you put us in a position where what you do can be attributed only to you. So we are grateful for that. And Lord, help us uh, in our times where we've gotten like Paul and thought emotionally, this is a mess, this is a disaster, it's not going to work out, it's going to be terrible. But Lord, there in Acts we see your miraculous hand at work, guiding and directing though the storm was raging taking them to exactly the place they needed to be for safe harbor. Even though they had to swim to shore, they made it. And Paul made it all the way to Rome like you promised he would. Thank you. We're going to make it all the way home like you promised we would. But Lord, in the meantime, we want to be obedient to your word and to your directive to occupy till you come. So help us as you were to be about the Father's business until you come for us and our work is finished. We thank you for our time in the book of Acts. We thank you for our time here in this building that we never expected to have to leave. We thank you that we have another four Sundays here as well. And Lord, we confess we don't know what's going to happen after that, but you do. So we look to you and help us, Lord, to be faithful to do what you called us to do up until that moment you take us home. Tell people about your Son, our Savior, the matchless Christ. We give you thanks. We give you glory. 
And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.